As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome to episode 15 of Remap Radio. Rob is out this week. I don't have to say it's a secret mission anymore. They're at fucking Disneyland. Like, they're at uh, the Star Wars yeah, thing. I have had to... Like, I've had different podcast recordings <laughs> where I'm like, Rob, am I allowed to say? No, you're not allowed to say. And then they started unfurling it through social media. Yeah. Um, so Rob, Rob is out in Disneyland this week with um, his Star Wars podcast. And then we'll be out there next week because MK discovered he was going to Disney and said, <laughs> so am I. So Rob is spending more time in Disney and will return hopefully when that's over. But there's like a jury duty thing. Yeah, there's might, a September might get a little say, weird for he's You'll for be Rob. back for a little bit and then maybe have to leave for jury duty the week after. And then hopefully Rob, I mean, other than, you know, you want, you want to do your time, want to do your service. But uh, also sometimes if you just say you're like a reporter, they're like, oh, we don't want you on this jury, yeah. which is... What's happened to me every time. But in the meantime, you're hearing some of those voices. One of those, Ricardo Contreras. Hello. Another one, Renata Price. Hello. And then also, we are uh, delighted to be joined by video game discourse creator. Put that on your LinkedIn. <laughs> founder of the studio, Strange Scaffold. Um, and uh, what is your title on uh, El Paso Elsewhere? Creative director? Yeah, I usually go with uh, just the plain old director. Plain old director of the upcoming Max Apena like um, El Paso Elsewhere coming uh, late in September 29th. Is that, uh, do I have that correct? 26th. 26th, awfully close. Uh, Salvador Nelson Jr., uh, you heard his voice earlier this summer in one of the earliest uh, podcasts uh, that Remap Radio did when I was out at Summer Games Fest. Uh, and we both had a delightful chat as both of our Summer Games Fests were winding down. And the response to that, I mean, there were a bunch of interviews in there, Salavir. And the one that people reached out to o- about over and over uh, was that one uh, tucked uh, near the end. And so I, I thought to myself, the moment we've got an open space, we're going to make sure uh, that we get uh, you on the show. So thank you uh, for coming through. Th- thanks so much to to you for creating space for again a very passionate and uh, nuanced interview, as well as the audience of Remap Radio for connecting with it. Uh, it's an honor to be here. Uh, earlier uh, in, a pre- in previously on Remap Radio, um, <laughs> we did discuss uh, in the context of Baldur's Gate 3 coming out, which obviously you were tied up in a lot of discourse about that and its relationship to game development, indie game development, budgets, player expectations. We had that conversation. Like, done, had that on a previous episode. The thing I was curious about is you became a main character on social media for a hot minute. And then the game comes out, and then you're also constantly cited, discussed, in context, out of context, people researching how to pronounce your name, people not researching how to pronounce your name. (laughs) I'm less interested in, like, how you feel about where people fell and all that as much as, like, like how what was it like to be in the middle of that storm personally 
For me, it was interesting for two reasons. The first one was that I have been pursuing this specific way I talked about my projects and about my studio through the lens that there's a breach between creators and audience right now. We have, for example, I think the VFX industry in film is really interesting. We have CGI concretely getting worse, looking worse, feeling worse, making less, making worlds that feel less real and immersive in film. And the audience expresses reasonable upset about this, not just for reasons of that they've paid money to come in through the door on these experiences, but also asking a very reasonable question of with the advances of technology and time, why has my experience degraded and what does this mean about the future of something that I love? And VFX creators are saying, we don't have the time and the money and the working conditions to produce the work that we are fully capable of and used to do. We are living in hell right now. And then audience not having the framework or context in a lot of cases for that that conversation, sometimes there is understanding, but because the factors that result in this pain are systemic, it isn't the lack of passion or care, it is a distinct, I hate to say it, late-stage capitalism issue. This is a, this is a safe place to say that. Um, <laughs> you're You're good. You're good. <laughs> There's certain people who like their ears shut down when they hear late stage capitalism issue. But like the capitalism issue here is that it optimizes for profit and exploitation. And if those things are mutually uh, if those things are mutually exclusive, then great. But if exploitation is needed to get those profits, then it will happen. And even given context or information, the audience doesn't have direct leverage to push against those systemic factors. So there is often a fallback to blaming those creative professionals and pointing at, say, the one movie with good CGI and say, y'all should do it like this. Why can't everyone do it like this? While meanwhile, they've been trying to communicate those factors to the audience when and if they can to so that together we can push for the conditions that allow us to make great art that we love making and that people love to enjoy uh, and deserve to receive. Honestly, if we can make things better, faster and cheaper and healthier than we could in the past, it is uh, buck wild that we would take those options off the table now. And when we bring that conversation back to games, what it showed me is just how deep that breach goes. Uh, a lot of developers gave impassioned, nuanced discussions and additional context to this conversation, including Larian itself. And a lot of that was discarded because we simply don't have a foundation for that conversation much right now. But that conversation occurring at all gives me hope for the future. I got death threats for two months, but I have the serious hope that because one bit at a time that foundation is being laid a few years from now, the next time we do have that conversation, we can as creators and as audiences move to confront the systemic factors that are resulting in uh, these issues. I'd say the second major reason it was very, very weird going through this is strange scaffold nearly closed down this year. 
because we are making the exact games that people are asking for. So a big crux of the debate as it evolved was we want games without abuse of monetization that respect my time that give me unforgettable different experiences than I just get from every other game and pursuing that course of action while also having an emphasis on team health at strange scaffold and trying to spread the message that these things are not mutually exclusive. We have been getting pursued constantly by uh, potential partners and publishers because those are the types of games we ship. And then I walk into the room and they say, this is really cool what you do. You can't make games that way though. And I point at nearly 10 games we've shipped now over the past four years. I'm like, but we've been doing it and they're profitable and they grab attention consistently. They're like, but yeah, you can't do that though. So over the past year and a half, we've been not getting anything signed. It's really weird being the bell of the ball, but not no one dances with you. (laughs) And what that's resulted in is, yeah, I can talk about it now because we're uh, out of the woods. Thank God. But, as this debate is raging about the types of games people want to see and the systemic factors that result in those games not occurring. Uh, I'm sitting here with a studio that is about to die uh, for making those decisions and sticking to them in the face of systemic factors and pressure to operate otherwise. And what it gave me outside of a lot of existential distress was really insight into the urgency of the conversations we're having right now. If you love a creator and their perspective and what they do and how they do it, the time to step in is not three months from now. The time to step in and do a tweet or do a Steam review or to buy their game is not, oh, when they do something like really big that falls in my genre space. When Remap Radio landed on the map, I was telling people about it and retweeting that thing because right now is the exact point in which we have to make our voices loud and clear because even for the hope of what that say that creator that did something interesting right now and we want to see what they'll do in the future they don't get to get to that point within the space and late stage capitalism that we're in now if we don't show up and for me what it drove was just even more urgency having because you have to project success in order to have people believe in you. Uh, It drove me to be even more fervent and urgent about showing up for people and for things that I believed in and for work that I want to see supported because across the industry right now, despite player love and clear cultural need, uh, of all types of conversations and games. I'm quietly seeing the dominoes fall that so that those voices don't get to continue adding to the space. So one thing you just said there that was I, I, I want to return to is about like VFX workers and, and, and the gap between mm. people understanding a medium and like how the production process of a medium and and, you know, the people actually consuming uh, that medium. And like I saw a thread recently talking about uh, misunderstandings around VFX right? like work and like literally what it, what it, what it entails. Um, and that thread was specifically talking about, I believe, the claim that Mad Max Fury Road did not have any uh, CGI shots. 
uh, to which a bunch of VFX professionals were like, okay, people want to ha- like hold up Mad Max Fury Road as like this return to classical VFX-less mm-hmm. filmmaking. And then had to be like, well, no, this f- film is full of VFX shots. It's just you're referring to two technologies that are basically indistinguishable from one another or deeply interrelated as the same thing. And, you know, that is an intentional strategy on part of publishers to create that gap. All of these gaps of, like, information and knowledge are frequently intentional. Uh, because, like you were saying earlier, the goal of late-stage capitalism is to maximize both efficiency and exploitation. Uh, it, it's, and a- it's the blast processing thing. So many people's <laughs> brains still bear the damage of blast processing. Mm-hmm. Don't ask what blast processing is. It's just better. Right. <laughs> God, I remember those ads. I lived through that. Um, and so, yeah, it's an intentional process. And so it's it's been particularly frustrating to see uh, over and over again um, this happen. Um, so, yeah. In, in terms of, like, your own personal relationship with those kinds of conversations, running a studio, going through all of the scares that seems like you've been through over the last couple of months or the entire year – what does like the impending release of El Paso Elsewhere represent on that journey for you? I would say what El Paso Elsewhere represents is a real call to understanding of what your process does for your project, good and bad. One of the things that we did for El Paso Elsewhere that's different than a typical game development pipeline is... VO and writing was one of the last things to come in. So we did all of the... uh, So the game has been in development for three and a half years total, which is the longest dev cycle that uh, that Train Scaffold has had to date. And all of the cutscenes were written and voice recorded this year. It's been years of rehearsals. It's been years of discussions, but it was only locked down and written. And the pipeline and all the tools to make those cutscenes... We developed those and then brought in the content later. And the reason you don't usually do that is because especially when you've got hours of voiceover to process, to edit, to discuss, a lot to write, that uh, is not something you want to put at the end of the chain if only because of all of the things involved with it. But because of the choices we made to do that, it meant that our cutscenes could reflect the very uh the the clearest distillation of what three and a half years of thought would result in our levels all of that vo was written like two months ago because all of the levels were finally locked like a month or two ago and what that let the designers do was given the context and conversations we've been having creatively around the arc of the game and the cutscenes and their writing, which was now locked, they were able to proceed and build levels that spiraled into a ton of incredible wild directions that frankly, our tool set was never built for, but these <laughs> former Skyrim modders stepped in and Wait, what? Wait, what former Skyrim modders, the people who we hired to do level design were former Skyrim modders. So that rules. <laughs> we have a level that we have this uh, in-game script. Uh, and, and by script, I mean a little bit of code 
That's called a portcullis code. It makes a thing move up and down. It's supposed to make portcullises in the castle move up and down. One of the level designers, Robin Scarborough, used that to basically build a, a Max Payne style clockwork mansion. And then all the other level designers who I had previously said, hey, we aren't doing verticality. We aren't doing all these other <laughs> arbitrary limitations to ensure scope and surface area of the game. Build uh-huh, cleverly uh-huh. around that. Pretty soon, soon people were uh, taking our level assets. I'm not going to spoil uh, that thing. What I am going to say is a portcullis is just a thing that moves up and down. So if you have several things moving up and down and they mm. do so in a sequence, then a portcullis can become a sphincter. Right? <laughs> uh, just a, uh, it nice. can become a sphincter. Hell yeah. It's, I mean, anything. I love it when a portcullis you know. becomes a sphincter. <laughs> I'm always saying this. People have been it, it asking is, me I know. to we, stop. We're, we're, we constantly, we're cutting it out of the podcast. Like, Ren, please, <laughs> stop saying this. And now you're just, now you're just encouraging her. Uh, we have an entire forest level because someone took all the level assets and was like, well, what is a graveyard but uh, a forest with less trees? Uh, <laughs> and we built, and they built an entire, like, ruins. People went mad with power. And because of that space they were given, and because their tool set, our, our primary level designers for the game were uh, Kevin Ribeiro, Jim Brown, uh, and Robin Scarborough, I we built an environment for me to do the writing and recording later, which, again meant that we had hours of more VO to run through ahead of the release of the game coming in very hot. But we didn't make pres- we didn't have to go with prescribed levels or ways of using our tools. We were able to have a more active collaboration and conversation between what those levels would be and how the narrative would incorporate them into the overall arc of the game. To return... <laughs> Several sphincters ago to your early question. <laughs> El Paso Elsewhere is the, the clearest extension of the conversation I've been having almost since the beginning of my game dev career now that the processes you choose for good and for bad allow you to are the most direct translation of what your project becomes. And the love and the intentionality with which we've made those choices to bring this game to life. I hope that people see them. The writing is really sharp. I had played a little bit of the, the demo um, that you put out uh, earlier this year, like closer to Summer Games Fest, and then revisited about an hour of it um, uh, yesterday. And it's 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 really funny. Um, and like the, 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 the cutscene direction is like, despite the, I mean, limited to the wrong word, but like you have a very deliberate art style that you're going for, a very deliberate... Um, uh, sort of like the the character look for the like the way the pot you know it's not going for hyper realistic right like it's, we're definitely yeah. back in a different era of of sort of like uh, art design um, and working with those limitations it's just really good like I was I I it, it definitely you're I get the evocation uh, like evoking of of Max Payne from top to bottom but it has its own distinct spin on it and was darkly funny um, with some punchlines that I was uh, I I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't anticipating. It's it's really well done. I think people are going to be surprised by that element, um, you know, if they check out the game uh, later this month. Thank you. Yeah. All of those cutscenes, by the way, one one guy, he he's never worked with cutscenes before. His name is uh, Romero Bonnickhausen. He's uh, 
been the lead programmer and sort of design collaborator on the game alongside myself. And he just said, can I try cutscenes? And we said yes. And then every cutscene he produced took the script that we had and made such interesting cinematographical. They made really interesting camera decisions Uh (laughs) where and how they put them places. And I was like, yeah, Uh, he was like, I really love doing this work. Can I do more of it? And we changed our dev pipeline to give him the space and process in order to bring those things to life. Uh, There are stuff that it accomplishes that is coming from the script or from a recommendation I gave. But so much of it speaks to his voice as well. And that's another really cool conversation I'm excited to have around El Paso elsewhere, particularly if it reduces the critical mass to sort of earn that space in the public discourse is auteur theory doesn't mean a single voice is represented. It means that a single voice has the opportunity to guide and encourage and uplift other voices to create something larger than itself. And from the the sphincter doors to (laughs) the really impressive, we have over 40 minutes of fully 3D cinematic cutscenes. All of those reflect a team that is operating really intentionally to build the best thing we can to the time and budget that we have and to take care of each other. Um, uh, maybe last question on this point, but to the point of taking care of each other, uh, like you're in the final sprint, right? In the final sprint, I think a lot of people associate with crunch, devs getting exploited, whether it's done maliciously or through poor project management or unexpected things that happen. Like what lessons have you taken into this final stretch to try and uh, at least anticipate those sorts of issues as you as you go through the, the final couple of weeks? I think one of the biggest ones was real intentionality, particularly being in a the tight space that I mentioned of are we going to survive? The literal situation of the studio was we made the hard choices. We did our first ever project con- cancellation. The game was going to come out September 26th, and we were basically going to run out of money October 1st. That Damn, was that how close. dire of a position we were in. Yeah. Wow. So being really intentional about, okay, for a period of time, Zolivir is going to be on the pyre. I took every single freelance opportunity that came my way. I got less choosy. It was, I need to make money to pay my team members to make this game what it needs to be, first of all. But also, we're a larger studio. We have six projects in production right now. Uh make sure that people are taken care of and have transparency of we might close down. So supporting them in looking for jobs preemptively, as much as I hate to lose the team and institutional knowledge, what's more important is that those people continue to provide their, their creative voice to the medium elsewhere and reach players, uh, hopefully one day within their own right and name and maybe even studios, if that's a goal that they have. The producing of uh, a bunch of uh, freelance work and vertical slices and all that stuff just meant I was going to be set on fire and we have space for me to recover uh, over the next few months. We have very deliberate conversations that have occurred inside of the production and infrastructure arm of Strange Scaffold. But I think 
the problem that I run into in games is not crunch so much, although that's a super serious issue and results in a lot of institutional burnout, but a lot of holistic decisions that when you're confronted with the reality of survival, uh, force you to consider what you actually value. So transparency with team, figuring out what sacrifices we're going to make and who's going to be in the hot seat at which moments and how we can make sure that they're supported before, during and after those times. That's been how we've been handling it. Uh, I think that a lot of crunch is avoidable. I think that a lot of overall negative working conditions are things that can be addressed specifically and systematically. But also the dirty secret of games and of existing under capitalism is that it isn't just your own processes you control. It is the system that you work within. So Damn. you can be having the most healthy, no crunch pipeline ever. And then your publisher says you need to have a fully animated trailer ready in two weeks. Also, we pay all the bills for your studio. And that's the one project you have. You're going to crunch and having those conversations intentionally and taking those uh, compromises and necessities of any job into active account as part of a more holistic decision matrix, I think is healthier than, for example, saying you do no crunch except for all of the little bits of crunch that you had to do that you call overtime or uh, a focus sprint or something else. Mm -hmm. Ooh, focus sprint. That was said a lot in the Double Fine <laughs> documentary when I was watching that. Um, it was like, we're going to work really hard for the next two weeks to get there. It was just like, oh, mm. this feels coded, like coded language. Um, um, now, granted, they talked a lot about, I mean, they, they're pretty open about the process, but it did seem like there there's different gears, right? Like, then yep. we think of crunch as being um, people under your desk, like, you know, sleeping overnight. You know, it may just be that, like, you're putting the gas on, you know, harder than than you would on a on a normal work day. And that's still asking more of people than, ah, it's Monday. Time to just go about my day the, the normal way that I would. Well, I, yeah. Or, or you're going to be relying on one specific member of the team a lot for a period of development and saying, how do we make sure that they have a pipeline for safety and rest and recovery afterwards too right that's the thing i was thinking is that like i think a lot of people um i i think that a lot of issues around work hours uh at least in my experience have come from like a an association with like specific sets of hours inherently with productivity uh, it's just the, the the clear labor to time conversion and like you know speaking for myself personally i am a sprinter in terms of like how i work on stuff uh, I'm, I'm very good at jumping from thing to thing sprinting. And like, in a lot of ways, there are certain styles of work that being one of them that like do not always mesh well with like traditional structures. And if those don't mesh well with traditional structures, what you end up having is a lot of wasted labor, sorry, a lot of wasted labor hours, uh, that is just like grinding yourself into nothing for the sake of it. And like, I think that's a lot of the other frustrating things I, I, I've seen about like people talking about crunch is like the wasted labor uh, involved of just like having to acclimate oneself to a different mode uh, and it kind of just wearing you down completely. I think that like, you know, I mean, I, I believe that if I'm remembering correctly, like people on this exact show have talked about like liking going to E3, liking that sprint. The sprint feels good for a while. Yeah. I like the sprint and like, the problem is that right now the sprint is a weapon 
uh, that is like used mm. against people as opposed to a tool that people are utilizing towards their like personal ends. Yeah, I'm, cho- um, I'm cho- like when Austin and I would podcast for like eight hours in a row at an E3, it's because both and I are looking at each other like, let's fucking do this. Like, this is all I want to do for the next eight hours. And you feed off of the energy of one another and you're entering an agreement. Like, it's all it's it's consensual as opposed to what you're saying, which is, is like like is like it's it's the, it's the way the environment around you the structures around you use that to grind you into dust as opposed to being acclimated to your own personal relationship with work and when you can be efficient, when you can be good at it. Right. Or the like department. Oh, yeah, oh, sorry. Just a very, one very, very, one very quick add on is also just a department that is always neglected where it's like, oh, yeah, the sound team will always come in at the end, which means the sound team is always crunching. That's a pretty common thing in game development, yeah. not just for sound team, but there's almost always one department that a studio emphasizes in terms of its production pipeline. And especially when that's never systematically addressed or even just discussed, you have a group of say writers who are constantly getting burned and churned out of the studio. And it's like, why is that? It's because every other department, the leftovers of their process or failures of their process lie on one discipline. Well, you know, one thing I would note, like, in around all this, like, even, you know, speaking from, you know, working at Waypoint and then at Remap, like, one thing that I would always kind of chafe up against with uh, with Austin and Rob, and um, maybe you can speak to this as well, Ren, based on how you view your own sort of, like, work habits, but, like, I would catch them doing, like, uh, okay, like, Kato, you've noticed this, mm. where it'll be, like, one in the morning and I just get seven calendar invites from Rob. Yeah. And it's the clearest sign. Like, Cause we don't do like check-ins anymore because it's a DM of three people and we're all usually doing stuff together. So we don't need like a, like stand-ups and like other things to start and close the day. Um, but I'm like, motherfucker, it's like, I know it's one in the morning, your time. Why are you sending me one, like seven calendar invites? Because that's just the way. And I, we have conversations about this. Like, Hey, I understand that you, Austin, are kind of night owls. Like, you like to do work at off hours. But, like, we need to make up for that in other other ways. I'm You still kind of need to be around in the nine to five. But if, like, hey, to do X, Y, and Z, your brain is just in the mood for it, um, that's fine. But, like, we also need to, like, t- tell me you've done that so then we can account for that in the workflow to, like, give you Friday afternoon off or something um, as opposed to just doing the nine to five to whatever degree you can, but then also doing like the one to three where your brain is just ready to like rip through right. a bunch of uh, menial work that you just didn't have the attention and energy for during, during the day. And then just trying to, you know, understand that unfortunately like the nine to five structure like is what we have, but then accommodating the fact that other people will find time to do things for themselves when it makes the most sense for them. Um, and A, not letting that distract, you know, like take away from other people. I think this is like the sound, I, like the sound team sort of idea. It's like, look, if you want to do your thing, do that. Be just be like, be transparent about it so we can make sure that you're getting time off to account for that. Um, but also don't try not to drag others into that if that is your own personal process. Um, like, I think it's bad if you're doing work between 12 and three, but like I've worked with Rob and Austin for seven years. I've said my piece they know how I feel about it and their brains are <laughs> wired a certain way. And I've given up except being like, just make sure you take a day off and like that we're not losing track of that stuff. I mean, I also think that it's difficult because even if 
right? Even like if you are the kind of person who works well in like a non-traditional like nine to five, like, or in a non-traditional structure, the other problem is that like that skill set is something you develop entirely on your own. And I think that's another, like one of the big problems is that like those skills are frequently not developed in community with other people and are instead like, okay, cool. I learned how to sprint because I was working on my own in like this one pretty select area for a really long time. And those work habits stick with you. Uh, And there isn't really a process by which like, I, I mean, like I can say personally, my first three months at Waypoint were a mess. Um, uh, I think that I was, I, I it was, they were not good, uh, in part because I was relearning how to work and how to structure my work, uh, at a publication that had less and a different structure than the one I was at before. And like, I personally, I fumbled the bag extremely badly. Um, but like, I, I think that fumbling the bag is also part of, you know, uh, the process of learning how to adapt to any work culture. Uh, and I, and I cannot help but look at, um, a lot of like the frustrations and, you know, labor concerns of people working within studios. And it's just like, there are different kinds of work people are trying to do all in the exact same way. And I think it is just like a machine that produces frustration, uh, and like interpersonal cruelty. Um, and that was the, that was actually the last thing I want to say is, uh, to return to earlier. I remember my point, which is that like, I think the really frustrating thing about the way that labor works right now is, you know, Patrick, what you said about you and Austin feeding off of each other to record for eight hours. Like the thing that I like always remind myself and, and the reason that I am like the way that I am, uh, and believe the things that I do is that I believe that labor can be extremely joyful, uh, and it's best in its best moments. Labor is like it's unlike basically anything else. And like, I absolutely love it. Um, I think it is an important part of being human is to like, you know, put, put oneself into something. Um, and I think the frustration that I have with, you know, stuff like this is just like, it could so clearly be different. There could so clearly be joy in this. Uh, and yet, uh, every systemic factor is basically built to, uh, sand down every aspect of the process until it becomes its most exhausting, uh, like incarnation. Uh, and that's just endlessly frustrating to me. It also leaves no space for introspection. It is endlessly surprising to me how often put aside game studios, any workplace cannot vocalize what its actual culture or work practices are. What is an ideal employee? That's like, passion uh we're a family uh like make 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 the hard choices like the expression of joyful labor and how you do things is point one of having anything that is effective or sustainable long term and most game studios Capitalism does not encourage introspection. And so as you're on that treadmill, there's very few times that we either have the language or the opportunity to step back and say, what are our actual patterns? What is Rob Zachney's uh, (laughs) sleep schedule actually? Because if that it can be communicated, then that can be joyfully opted into, worked around and form a part of a more delightful whole. 
Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And it's a process, right? It's not something you do one day. I mean, it's part of the joy of, you know, uh, at least here. And it sounds like with you, Zali, like working with people for a long time, like that institutional institutional knowledge is also understanding better over time the people you work with, their strengths, their weaknesses, your strengths, your weaknesses, how will those things overlap with one another. And that just takes time. Like you can communicate it and think about it all you want, but some of that is just, it's just investment over a long period of time to see how you can make that work best for, for a group of people, whether that's two people, three people. And then as you, you know, uh, scope up from there, um, it's kind of just time. Um, uh, and as that, we move forward in time, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, if there's one last thing I can say, it's that. Do it. That's why it was so heartbreaking to me when I saw the closure of Mimi Me Games, because I knew about several of the other studio closures that occurred. I uh, My heart breaks for those devs and those studios and their work for a variety of reasons. But Mimi Me Games single-handedly resurrected a genre. They are the closest analog we have to Larian, actually. Because what Larian is for the CRPGs, Mimimi Games has been for strategy tactics games. Yeah, uh, just, to, just to familiarize people, like Desperados 3, like uh, Shadow and Gambit, The Curse Crew, which like just came out, was like really well-regarded. Uh, Shadow, Shadow Tactics. tactics um, uh, two of those. Um, and and yeah, I mean, like those games are all really well-regarded and they basically threw their hands up and said, the treadmill is really hard. And we're going to get off it. Yeah, they they were the only people to they after years of no games like this, like Commandos, they came back with Shadow Tactics and a variety of things, built a tool set and a team to make this game exactly every single game is overwhelmingly positive. Every single game is grossing over a million dollars in the first lot, uh, month of release. And when people like that shut down, not only does that mean basically that genre is dead with them or whoever comes next has to build all that from scratch but also that is a searing indictment of where we are that this can occur and that it just sinks beneath the waves as another studio closure on the wake of in the wake of what is one of the best years that gaming has ever had yeah that's definitely true i mean that's like no better uh you just like handed me a transition point. It's like you just like invented a baton to mention uh, the the closure of Volition, um, a studio that is really near and dear to my heart. I went to school in the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. They are based out of Champaign, Illinois. Champ- uh, U of I is a engineering school. And so Volition is born out of the fact that, hey, they got they got lots of really talented engineering talent because the the land was cheap so people could buy houses and um and the cost of living was pretty cheap because it was southern illinois um you were getting young kids coming out of college that weren't quite ready to be done with college but needed a job and so could stay stick around and they're responsible for really formative games for me like as i was growing up like i have incredible memories of the red faction games and like the first time i played like red faction and it was like bro you can just shoot through everything like you see that wall it's like shoot it you just keep going through and come out the other side i mean it blew my mind like they come from an era in which engineering tricks or not tricks or it sounds more derogatory than i mean it but like you could sell a game on that like red faction 
it had a story, you know, but you were there to like go, like somebody came up with this tech to get through the wall and it's like, just, I don't know, build a cool game out of that. And they did. And that continued between Red Faction, and Red Faction 2, Red Faction Guerrilla, which itself reinvented that. And just obviously Saints Row goes along that track. And the fact that, you know, uh, it was announced uh, late last week that um, uh, I'll just read the statement from the studio. The, the Volition team has proudly created world-class entertainment for fans around the globe for 30 years. We've been driven by a passion for our community and always work to deliver joy, surprise, and delight. This past June, Embracer Group announced a restructuring program to strengthen Embracer and maintain its position as a leader in the video game industry. As part of that program, they evaluated strategic and operational goals to make the difficult and made the difficult decision to close Volition effective immediately. To help our team, we are working to provide job assistance and help smooth the transition for our Volition family members. We thank our customers and fans around the world for all the love and support over the years. You will always be in our hearts. Part of that statement really feels like it was written by Embracer uh, and not uh, like just they just want to be strong. And like we want to help them be strong, too, by like shutting down a formative studio like tied to like real big moments in the games industry from the last 20 years. But it seems like between like Embrace, we've talked on this podcast before. Embracer is really like highlights hey, there was a lot of cheap free money the last couple of years over COVID. And then the moment that started drying up, well, the decision that seemed always seemed questionable at the time to just gobble up a bunch of studios and figure it out later, well, it turns out that figuring it out later is, I mean, granted, Felicians had a, a, a you know a slightly rougher go of it for the, their last couple of release, releases. Agents of Mayhem um, didn't do that well. Um, and the New Saints Row did okay. Um, but... Uh, I, d- I wanted to mention their closure and, and remember the studio uh, as, it, as it was and as, as it uh, used to be. But also, Salivir, you have a controversial opinion. Um, I did not like the new Saints <laughs> Row. Like It brings me no great joy to have delivered that when we talked about it on the podcast. Because as, as I'm, I'm pointing out here, I, I really loved a lot of what this studio did. I always root for them and... They were one of the first, like Illinois was not a place where you said, that's where video games are made. I mean, there was Midway, like there's history, but it's really only in the last like 10-ish years that the Chicagoland area has managed to develop, like it's kind of a community of of studios. Um, and Volition was just like, yeah, but Saints Row and Red Faction are made out here. But I did not, the new Saints Row didn't connect with me. I only played five, six hours. I didn't see it all the way through, but uh, what A, what do you make of the, the closure? B, why did this new Saints Row connect with you so deeply? So add this controversial take to my list, I guess. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Why did this cause an entire summer of discourse? <laughs> uh, it it kind of did. I got additional harassment for saying that the Saints Row game was good. Damn. Gamers will just get <laughs> death threats about every, anything these days. Have higher it, standards for yourself. <laughs> I think it was more like a combo meter thing where there was a, a a brief period where like I after the discourse was uh reaching its fever peak pitch I would say hey sure love that Saints Row game it's now coming to Steam for the first time this is really exciting because it connected with me uh and then people will be like proof of your bad opinions uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh or I would say, worked on the new uh, South Park game. I could finally announce that I wrote for that thing for like two years. And I was proud to work with the the studio at Question Games, uh, which is 
their work, in particular the game The Magic Circle, is one of the reasons I now make video games. And people were like, "That's guess that's not going to be good. <laughs> so people were just trying to build up the combo meters. I, I sign mm-hmm. no blame and have no uh, vengeance in my heart, uh, which is a sincere statement. But what I think about that Saints Row game is that what it's doing in terms of its design patterns is it's trying to answer a question like a lot of games do. And that question is, what does it look like? to make a Saints Row game that can itself be a uh, platform for more Saints Row stories when we've already gone to time, to space, and then like in the credits of uh, Saints Row 4, time. They, they've already done both and of those hell, things. right? Gat, Gat Goes to Hell was one of, Gat, one of those as well. Yeah, yeah Gat Out of Hell. So yes. we've gone to the afterlife. What's next? And I was... <laughs> not taken with any of the marketing around the game. I didn't like anything I had seen or heard of it. Little clips I'd even seen online after immediately after it came out. The whole idea of, oh, we're going to take this series that lived best in deeply sincere absurdity, uh, like emotional heart alongside that sincerity that I think is best exemplified in Saints Row 2 and 4. Uh, and we're going to just take that and put that in the desert and have it around some like young millennials, I guess it felt like what a hip, cool executive would pitch as the reboot of the Saints Row <laughs> franchise. Uh huh. And what I found instead, when I did finally play it on the recommendation of a friend, was a game that's very cleverly trying to answer the question of what does it mean to be not a a, a juvenile adult? Because I think in Saints Row Two, even like spraying sewage on people that. There is the degree of trying to appeal to a very core, like, 15 to 24 a, a, a male demographic. Uh, and this game says, you've gotten a little bit older. You exist under late-stage capitalism. You are in your uh, late 20s, early 30s, but you still have roommates. And life sucks a little bit. Don't you want to just go ape shit? Don't you just want to go a little <laughs> crazy? Uh, what if you start a, a gang? Uh, and it unfolded these it has really interesting things with its overall structure so all the side missions which would normally just be go to a location do a thing uh and tick a box on or an icon on a map those all have really intentional the delivered story beats that occur between those missions you're always unfolding something about the world about the characters which segues into unlocking more uh, endeavors, and I don't remember the exact name for the uh, system, but like basically new hustles that your characters can do, new spaces for the game to move into, which unlocks more small story threads that are linked together through systemic content in the world. They had to deliver an open world game with a lot of content. How do we do that, but still make each bit say something meaningful about these characters, the world, and uh give the player things to be doing for tens of hours at a time, ideally without that process getting rote, boring, or at least entirely trivial. And I connected with the answers that they found. I dug the world and the story and those characters and this version of it. The character customization is incredible. And I was so excited for what their version of the Saints Row 2 going forward from that foundation would look like, especially once they had... Saw, uh, fixed a lot of bugs in the, the technical foundation issues 
that uh, were immediately after launch. And we'll never get that answer, if only because as a marketing play, saying we have taken all of the tools for the previous game, that game was bad. So we threw out all of the tools for it. That is a common thing in games, and it's becoming more common. And the way that they usually phrase it is, next game is un un unreal, guys. Uh, don't look at the last one. Uh, next one, it's <laughs> unreal. Unreal, the good engine, baby. And all of the tools that could have been used to produce their next thing in a far more efficient manner gets ditched along with the old technology. Great sales well, I mean, pitch, everyone. We threw out all of our <laughs> institutional knowledge. We just wanted to kind of see how it would go over. Uh, we got rid of all the institutional knowledge and just thought we would kind of wing it uh, for the next one. Well, I mean, I I've seen this come up a, a number of times uh, as, as people look at Starfield because there's always like, why do they keep using this, you know, ancient creator engine that they've like had for, for like, why don't they just, you know, make it in Unreal like the way everyone else is doing it? And like anyone, like it's for the exact reasons you're talking about. It's like, because this is the way they make these games. This is the way they've done it forever. There are trade-offs to that in the same way there are trade-offs with everything. And however you feel about the game they've built, whether you like it, you don't like it, like they it is a continuation of a long history of a style of, of game that they like to make. And like, that is only possible by continuing alongside tool sets and procedures and that they have from literal decades of building these styles of games that suddenly just plopping it in unreal engine because it's shiny and can do something that maybe Bethesda's engine can't do. Isn't going to radically fix how you feel about the game. It introduces whole sets of other uh, you know, problems. Um, Pe I mean, people like love modding Bethesda games. There's now an institutional knowledge in the modder community. If they move engine, if they were to change Starfield's engine tomorrow, magically wave a wand, and that's all that happened, all of the institutional knowledge of people who have been modding Bethesda games following that for years, that also gets erased, built from scratch, or potential, uh, uh, and they would, even if it had the same modding capability, they would all have to build that that institutional knowledge within the modern community from the ground up. You lose a lot of things, which isn't always a reason. You don't stick with an, an engine arbitrarily. There's good reasons to move on. Unreal Engine does a lot of amazing things, but no game is fixed by moving engine, no matter what the engine is. It's just it trades for a new set of problems and advantages. Exactly. Uh, well said. Uh, well, let's take a quick break. We'll come back, talk some games, um, hopefully take some of your questions. Uh, but we'll be uh, right back. There'll be an ad here, you know, if you're on one of those podcast feeds. But if you go to remapradio.com, if you want to support us, independent, poor little remap radio, <laughs> you can get those ads to go away. Actually, we're doing pretty okay. But if you want to support us as well, I mean, that will, you know, we'll take it. And then the ads go away. Um, uh, we'll be right back after this break. One of the most normal morning routines is a bowl, some milk, some cereal. What <laughs> changes as you get older is you might want to modify what you're putting into that bowl with the milk. If you suddenly want to cut back on sugar, or you want to add more protein, you're thinking about fitness goals, but you don't want to give up 
the deliciousness of what you're putting in that bowl, you might want to think about Magic Spoon. Uh, because with Magic Spoon, you get all those flavors you love, high protein, less sugar, and as someone with kids, the idea that I can show them that these cereals can have all of these things and you can think about what's in your body every morning seems really good. Magic Spoon comes in a variety pack of four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. This pack has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and four to five grams of net carbs. Only 140 calories a serving, it's high protein. Has zero grams of sugar, keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. And look, you put peanut butter in anything, I'm there, which is why that's my favorite one and I'm hiding it from my children. You can go to magicspoon.com slash remap to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code REMAP at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, start the new year off right with a delicious bowl of high-protein cereal at magicspoon.com slash remap and use the code REMAP to save $5 off. Thanks to Magic Spoon for sponsoring this episode. Hey, Remap Radio listeners, Rob here. You know, the time was I'd come up with a meal plan for the entire week, and then I'd trawl through the grocery stores making sure I had everything I needed right on budget to make those home-cooked meals. Unfortunately, times have changed, and speaking of time, I don't have quite as much of it as I used to. You know, there's a podcast empire to be overseen. But I can't just order fast food and pizza delivery every night. My budget, and unfortunately, my increasingly delicate stomach won't allow it. Fortunately for folks in the same boat as me, there's Factor. Factor gives you 35 options each week to make meal planning easy. And not just for dinner. They have breakfast foods and snacks covered as well. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. But it's just as convenient delivering the food you need right to your door. And now, if you head to factormeals.com slash remap50 and use code remap50 to get 50% off, that's right, that's code remap50 at factormeals.com slash remap50 to get 50% off. And now you can head to factormeals.com slash remap50 and use code remap50 to get 50% off. That's code remap50 at factormeals.com slash remap50 to get 50% off. And welcome back. Remap Radio continues. Uh, I'm I'm hearing from the dark reaches of podcast space. Kato, are you still there? Hi. Yes. Hi, yes. you're there. Yes, I'm Kato here. is here. Um, <laughs> I've been uh, muting I, myself, coughing a little bit during the early yes, yes, of yes. So the well, to the point where I feel like I sat down as uh, from uh, getting some water to Zalavir asking very kind, like, so what do you do here? Um, like, because God, God didn't say anything during the first part of the podcast. Yeah. I wanted Respecting- to make sure that people weren't, uh, get, weren't steamrolling avocado. I wanted to make sure I was throwing things to Kato. <laughs> no, it's good. It's God good. Is, Thank you. <laughs> uh, no, the, the acknowledgement is, 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 is deeply welcome, but <sighs> Kato, you and Ren have been playing a game that I know nothing about. Cantata. Uh, Cantata. looks like it just hit 1.0 after being early access mm-hmm. in steam. Yeah. Well, uh, what's the deal? What's this game? 
Um, uh, Ren, did you play early access or one point or just one? I point? did. I did okay. play. I did play early access. I played the first three missions <laughs> of the nine mission Ooh. campaign. Nice. Uh, back during like the first stage of early access. I, I really, really liked it. Cool. Um, I'm only, I've only started playing 1.0. There's a lot of things that like catch my eye and I'll be like, early access. Let's wait. Cause I, I will tend to look at something in in early access and then forget to come back to it when it hits 1.0 and i feel like it really uh it really helps when like a thing is like okay this is the dev is uh you know confident enough to be like this is the completed game that we don't need more feedback on as of yet you know like the the weird nice to put something on your radar yeah the weird zone that ea like uh puts games in can be a little awkward uh but that's true for electronic arts and for games in early early access access, frankly yeah so oh my god (laughs) uh but cantata is essentially um i think one like one of the easiest ways to kind of describe it is if you take the sort of some of the um sort of uh base and like building out of like a st- it's like what if starcraft was uh turn-based what if civilization was more like tactical and s- smaller but had like similar sort of like you have these um building requirements and things that are like regional and specific to like a slow kind of outward growth um what if you're very... killing more people in civilization is that is well, that is yeah, that the thing is that civ civ has <laughs> combat that exists in it but it is not a combat focused game i would say right right and this right. is like the kind of expansionism that happens in throughout these maps is 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 purely military expansion for the most part at least at least in the first uh chapter so far but it's 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 worth noting it's closer to an rts than like than right the, the, the star, right. Like starcraft every... but turn-based because it is a turn-based sort of thing where you take a turn and then the computer like other players on the map take a turn uh, right and also the game is like as you progress into later chapters and the other factions is is explicitly about how do you build a resource pipeline for this specific faction but with the level of fidelity uh, with a level of like fidelity and control that you cannot usually get from RTS games without extremely high APM, right? By by right. slowing it down, it refocuses back onto the actual like strategic buildup as opposed to the like execution of managing a bunch of resources and units simultaneously. Yeah. Um, uh, and and the specific style of building is RTS style building, where it is like this region has this resources, so I have to put down my single resource extractor or multiple resource extractors, and then you know continue to progress through this area. With the note that different factions uh, that you play throughout the campaign all spawn and fight in completely different ways, uh, and have like totally different like flows and uh, like progression pipelines in terms of like how they grow in power, uh, and like what the particular approaches they have to take are. Um, and all of this is wrapped up in like a, a campaign structure that like doles this out to you a chapter at a time uh, in a way that I actually like really like. Can I yeah, please read a... this 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 cut out this you pasted the steam link and I have yeah. to read these sentences. <laughs> yeah. 
a rebellion has broken out, disrupting the military force controlling the galaxy, titled the 111th Reign of Humanity and Prosper. Mm-hmm. A swarm of robots calling themselves the Unified Spirit have risen up against the shackles of their human masters with the dream of a better world. Those are just good sentences. That's <laughs> that's like that's that's, is, that's compelling content. That's a good pitch. This is this is one of the first things that like stood out to me honestly when I first saw Contado was uh a very very intriguing art style both in like the actual in-game sprites and stuff and also it's in colorful the- it's very colorful like yeah. that's definitely like, i would almost out des- to me as i'm looking at these i almost describe it like mike miliona took up like trying to em- emulate like mobius like the think of mobius is like dune uh uh illustrations that he made for uh jodorowsky like that sort of bright weird neon aliens palettes but then like with some of the mark uh, mike manila like blacks like deep blacks but it's that's it's the hell vi- that's the hellboy the artist, hellboy right? guy yeah yeah um and it's like also has that sort of like jodorowsky's dune feeling weirdness of like this is like space uh like spacefaring uh civilizations but a lot of the like touchstones for their clothing and stuff it falls within the medieval and stuff like it's very like you know the the ways that uh, a lot of like even warhammer does this and dune does this of like mixing you know high technology with like older style like royalty and nobility and stuff like that it's really got a really cool style uh that i that i uh that initially drew me uh into the game um also just on the style section, uh, some really tremendous writing. Uh, I think the game's writing is, like, very fun. Uh, There is a faction... uh, The factions in this game are really unique and interesting. Uh, They are really cool takes on their respective, like, archetypes. Uh, The Evil Space Empire is a good... Is it, like, an interesting version of the Evil Space Empire archetype? And the, like, robots... The like eco terrorist robots. Uh, okay, hold on. The... You have to elaborate. What? Who are the eco terrorist robots? <laughs> you can't just say that phrase and just walk past it like you said Basic- something normal. Basically, uh, they're they're a, it's a faction that was originally created to do uh, like very specific. If I'm remembering correctly, like it's a basically an, a robotic faction originally designed to do like specific types of labor, uh, and eventually. Uh, they broke free of that uh, <laughs> and ended up uh, just becoming them. super interested in cultivation uh, and like the maintenance of like natural cycles, uh, and so just became like an uh, a robotic army of eco terrorists. Um, is is Hell my yeah. understanding of that faction, uh, which is extremely sick uh, as they participate in this like three front war, uh, and then the yeah, I I, I really really liked the uh, world building in this game. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's really, um, you know, it's got the kind of standard dialogue stuff happening during missions that, uh, is I feel like more interesting than like you usually get barks uh, in some of these games, but like it has both a like really great, um, I feel like there's that there's that they used to use this phrase i I don't know if this was official marketing pr for civ uh but there was the phrase uh one more turn like floated around that type of game at least and uh it's been a minute since i feel like a game has had that effect on me and like this one's kind of gripping me in that way of just like oh i could leave now because you can save at whatever point like it's totally fine but 
hold on. Actually, I want to see what's over here in this corner. And also, let me mess with my resource, uh, my resources again and make sure I have enough uh, infrastructure slots to make another building over here. Oh, but I'm out of buildings there and I can, you know, hook up another pipeline over to this section to get more supplies over to the army that's running over here. It's got a lot of those kind of stacking layers that, again, like, you could almost see a lot of, like, half of these mechanics existing in an RTS and people playing with it really fast and, like, me not understanding, like, any of it. Like, the, the way that, like, I mm -hmm. could not play uh, uh, StarCraft the way that professionals played StarCraft. No, that's why but, I like, just I just make all the mammoth tanks and then I make just a big like, square yeah, over them yeah. and I click on the base and they go, wow, 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 boom, boom, boom. Like, that's but, how I play an RTS. <laughs> yes. And 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 for, for being slower, it you end up doing a lot of a lot less of that sort of turtling and making a lot of a thing and just kind of rolling, uh, especially because there is also a, a turn clock of just like you have to hit certain objectives by a certain amount of turns. Um, Which was not an early access and has become like a pretty huge point of contention yeah. in Ooh. the recent response to the game. Uh, the, the turn limits are a recent addition. If you will go look at the Steam reviews for Cantata, like it is, is that why we're mixed now? Patrick, that is yeah. why in fact they are mixed now. So was that um, as, as a 1.0, like was this a surprise to the community or, or communicated and people just don't like its implementation? Like how, it how has it gone? over it seems that people are treating it like a surprise i don't remember the okay. exact like time in which it was implemented but it appears to be implemented specifically for 1.0 and like listen yeah. i uh, will have to go back to it um but like i am like especially in like tactics games like this pretty firmly a fan uh, of turn limits or at the very least turn pressures um because i think that like it's a way to just like thinking from a design perspective. It's also like a way to module. It can be in its best version. Term limits can be, or turn limits, uh, soft turn limits can be a really good way to modulate difficulty without actually having to, you know, create a wholly different, um, difficulty level, right? If you say, Hey, there's an optional objective or like this, this turn limit that requires you to then play a certain way that is either more aggressive or like hungrier, um, turn limits can be a really great way to do. That's why, uh, XCOM, uh, two was so like, I, I think that, you know, the, the second modern XCOM is a way more compelling strategy game than the first because of the optional turn limits adding a degree of like like basically mission level modular difficulty that the player can opt into or out of and i think those are turn limits at their best and i think people are frustrated it seems by cantata because the turn limits are a lot harder um they are it's it's, it's a hard stop situation interesting well i'll be curious to see what like is this the kind of thing where they could just make it optional, right? Like to just turn it off or, or Kato based on its implementation in 1.0. It, like this is what the game is and they're going to have to adjust it from there. Or can you envision them responding to the community with, Hey, we hear you. Like we're going to, this is important to the game design, but we're going to provide options that let players flip this off. If that is more in line with the kind of game they want to play. It definitely feels like they probably could do that, but I think it, 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 loses something by not having those limits at all and partially that has to do i think a little bit also with the enemy design um they are 
set up kind of like X-Pod pod, X, XCOM pods, wherein they're essentially inert until the player interact, like, finds them, right? Like, they don't, like, they aren't patrolling as much. So it's less an RTS in that way, where even mm. in, like, AI skirmishes against, uh, you know, against the computer in, in StarCraft, like, they would be constantly building things and, like, sending units at your base to try to, like, uh, you know, uh, defeat you. In this game, it's very much more the thing of, like, you're kind of exploring this large map and will eventually run into enemies that feel like they've been set up as small, you know, as encounters in and of themselves, more than your two armies kind of crawling across the space. It's very much a player-focused expansion outward sort of feeling than, like, a two players on a map, like, kind of vying so, for space situation. Sorry, Kata, how many chapters of the campaign have you played? Just the first one. Okay, that is not true of others. Do they actually oh, move? <laughs> yes, yeah, that is, that is, I mean, the game's campaign structure is like a, a campaign structure in like the traditional tactics or RTS game sense and that like each campaign mission has a set of like bespoke objectives and like design strategies. There are missions in this game that do in fact have like an enemy force that is trying to take back territory from you. Um... And just one last thing, I want to uh, just like return to the tournament thing for just one second to note that I think that the turn limit is particularly useful in a game like this because it allows you to, like from a like design difficulty perspective, it basically puts pressure on the player to act with the kind of like cognitive and like intentional decision making efficiency of like a high level RTS player and to be making like the, the strategic decisions that are smart and well informed uh, and are, you know, efficient while also taking away again, the, the execution requirement such that like, I think it makes the best parts of that genre a lot more readable. And I think that the readability is not cl as clearly there without the turn limit. Um, I actually think that that is a, a pretty good development from when I played it early on because there was nothing stopping you from just like turtling and then ruining the, the, the game's economy. Um, and I think that, that is a really interesting source of, of pressure. Uh, Zalary, have you had any experience in the games that you've worked on that have they dipped their toes in early access? Has that been a deliberate choice or they didn't make sense for the kinds of games you were making? I'm curious, like, from a studio head perspective, how you look at that as like, hey, a chance to get that game in players' hands early and get early feedback, potentially early revenue, uh, which obviously could be important depending on how the studio is structured. Like, what's your look on that, having overseen a bunch of projects, you know, in, in previous years? Early access has the same danger. I, I've, I've been part of a, a bunch of different projects with a bunch of different um, structures, including early access. And I'd say the reason that Strange Scaffold games have not done early access today is because it has the same danger that Kickstarters do, which is if it doesn't do well, then it is a public stamp of at least lack of interest at the start of your game's journey and the rest of your game's journey. We're allowed to curse on this podcast, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. The rest of your game's journey is fucked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and the downside for early access as opposed to, to kickstarter is like if you do a kickstarter 
and then it fails, it's really hard to find funding afterwards because you brought it to the crowd and the and crowd decided no. not to fund yeah. it. Mm. It could be that it was a bad time. I've had this happen with where like really killer games that ended up doing really well, actually. They ended up having to self-fund the rest of development because their initial Kickstarter did not do well. And then uh, they were left with this big uh, scarlet letter on the project for the rest of, of development, even when talking to platforms. Because you go to Game Pass and you've got a failed Kickstarter. Uh it's 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 do they it's bring it big... up, do they bring it up or is that just something that kind of hangs over like is it like so how did the kicks like what you know what were the less like i wonder like is it like it's just something you know that they're thinking about or it's like actively a conversation like why do you think this didn't connect with audiences sort of thing depends on where you are the more the common thing i'm familiar with is just that it's a piece of what's hanging over your game so you can show gotcha. that the best comps and stuff ever but nevertheless, quick Google, now you're on Kickstarter. And the downside <laughs> right. of it for early right. access is we've got a string scaffold game that might really work there. And it was a back and forth in the team because we could have done something really special with an early access release. And we're still leaning towards no, because if it doesn't do well, if, say, 50 people buy it, early access is kind of an implicit contract to finish that game. And you're finishing it for an audience of 50 people. And finishing a game <laughs> is an expensive, labor-intensive process. Yeah. Retaining that uh, motivation to do it as a creator is really tough when, again, you've got that uh, that thing hanging on your back. So I if they click on, like, your publisher name in Steam and they're looking at what else has this developer done before, it seems like the kind of thing could also bite you in the ass later where they're like, Oh, well, the last game they put on here, they abandoned, they abandoned, you know what I mean? Like, I don't think of like gamer speak, but like they, ab they gave up on it. You know, they didn't finish the game and that might influence their future relationship with you as a studio. Massively. So, uh, and, and so like stuff does come up in conversations with all sorts of partners of what steam tags is your game going to fall under? So if you've got a game that's mostly negative, on Steam, they'll also, that's also going to be just like a little thing of like, you've got a little bit in your past. Mm -hmm. It isn't a, a, a something that bars you from doing successful or worthy development later on, but so much of game development is positioning that, especially right now, uh, as far as people understanding what your game is and what it's trying to do, that yes, there are times that it works really, really well. And for the games that it works really, really well for, like, Baldur's Gate 3 is a perfect example. People talk a lot about how the third act of the game has major stability issues compared to the first two acts because the first two acts were the ones that were in early access. Uh, and the amazing team at Larian is doing a lot to fix the bugs and stuff that they're finding now. But for a big, complex game that does well in early access, that can be the difference between success and mega success. And it's amazing how... Laren's community has shown up for them again and again in early access, and I would not doubt if they did it again just based off of how that relationship has resulted in what Baldur's Gate 3 has become. It's also worth noting that, like, you know, with regards to, like, Kickstarter and, like, early access being particularly dangerous at the moment is that, like, we've said it on the pod a little bit before, but money is extremely tight right now in, in games publishing and like money's like money's tight everywhere. But in like games publishing in particular, I've heard from a lot of people that like, it's, it's basically impossible to find money right now for a lot of people, for a lot of studios. And it's like particularly bad. It's, it is. And it's not 
which is the weird thing because we had record profits during the pandemic. We're having record profits and sales now. Uh, there's more ways to monetize a game before, during, and after right. its development than ever. And more people are playing games than ever, even now that there is some sales effect because people are going out and doing things uh, with a sh- uh, with lockdown no longer being uh, a-, a factor. But like all the money is there and there's still significant bigger deals than ever, in fact, happening. It's just all scared money. It's all scared money being like, ooh, economy, economy is Sorry, wait, that is what I that is what I meant. I was not trying to say that there is not money to go around. It is it is oh, that sorry, publishers yeah. are particularly hard to work with right now and particularly resistant to funding projects at a certain tier. Despite unprecedented safety, yes. Yes, exactly. Um elsewhere, uh Ren, I am deeply curious uh about this game. I sometimes and you know this. A game slides across my desk, and I'm like, I just need like this just screams for not a price. And okay. a game about like language, linguistics, like it just it just seemed like the type of thing that would be extremely your shit. So what yeah. what can you tell us about uh so so far what you've played of a uh, chance of Sonar? It is a really cool uh, puzzle game about language. Uh, Basically, uh, the way I would describe it is uh, you are climbing uh, the Tower of Babel uh, and each language, each floor uh, of the tower and each culture uh, that exists within the tower has a new language uh, and a a distinct language with like its own um, symbology and like it appears some differences in grammatical structure. Uh, although that has been like one of my uh, slight problems with the game so far uh, is is the ways in which like its linguistics are a little bit um, are a little bit straightforward to the point of making puzzle solutions feel unsatisfying, uh, at least in the ver- very early part of the game. Uh, but the basic pitch is, you know, you show up uh, at this tower uh, and then you, you know, are trying to climb it uh, to try and, you know, speak to God effectively uh, at the end of climbing Hell this tower. Yeah. And to do that, you are like solving pretty basic video game puzzles, um, you know, uh, switch puzzles, um, uh, block pushing puzzles. There's a block pushing puzzle pretty early on. Um, just the the most classic video game puzzles imaginable. Some stealth sequences. Um, Ooh, uh-oh. but <laughs> but no, they're <laughs> fine. They're fine. Okay, okay, all right. Uh, hey, hey, I'm, hey. That's the best you can ask for sometimes from a stealth sequence. Is it's yeah, fine. They're <laughs> totally it's- fine. It's surprising to hear about a stealth sequence being in a in a language parsing game. That's amazing. Yeah, well, so uh, <laughs> basically the way that it works is um, you can like, kind of just click on cover. And if your character's in cover, you're just fine. Uh, and you just have to like sneak through these because like one of the floors is the floor of a bunch of like warriors uh, who do not want you there. Uh, and I think that, like, in, 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 at times, the, like, quote-unquote stealth system ends up actually being kind of corny. Uh, there's this one little section where you're trying to get into uh, the, like, uh, an off area of a church. Uh, and the way that you do that is just by falling into line behind the other, uh, like, behind the people who are supposed to be there, who are wearing <laughs> completely different clothes, and you just, like, breeze the hell on through. Uh, and you can, like, walk you can join that group in front of the guards, like literally directly and they won't care. And it kind of leads to the whole thing feeling like a little bit, um, dissonant, uh, or maybe a bit like, 
uh, unnecessary uh, to the actual puzzle solving at play. But as the people are posting, the game's also very pretty. Uh, it's a really gorgeous art style. Some like really, really compelling uh, architecture um, and like visual design. But the meat of the game is coming across uh, little bits of text in the world or uh, signs or bits of conversation uh, from NPCs and then having to, by looking at the text itself, by looking at the script alone and its context, reverse engineer uh, a language. Uh, you know, a very early example is you come to a switch uh, and there are, the switch has two settings uh, and each of the settings is marked with characters in an unknown script, right? And so I look at this and I was like, okay, cool. Well, uh, I know that this switch is going to open this door, right? And so like, let me like to walk through the process, uh, the mm -hmm. thought process that I come to when I get to one of these puzzles, right? I know that this switch is going to open this door. The door is the only interactable thing around here. The switch clearly opens the door. Now, when you think about the way that like language and meaning is constructed, uh, you can actually do it in a bunch of different ways. There are a ton of different grammatical structures. There are a ton of different ways of understanding nouns and verbs. There are, you know, wholly different ways of like expressing understanding and meaning uh, and that are like reflected through language. And so... Sure, the most obvious thing for the switch to be saying is open door and closed door. And those are the solutions to the puzzle. Those are those are the what what those symbols mean. One means open, one means closed, and then there's a symbol for door. So it is like very simple like noun verb uh or like verb noun. Um you know, the first language in the game at the very least follows a pretty traditional um words are Individual words are used as the thing that they are. Very literal. Uh, yes, very, very literal translations. Like, you go here, or you help me. Uh, just like really simple stuff like that. But it is always in ways that are familiar. And so, when I come to this first puzzle, before all of this is clear, I ended up trying a bunch of different stuff to think about, like, how does meaning get constructed through a language? Um, so instead of open door, closed door, uh, you know, what, what else that could have meant was up power, down power, which is to like express the current or the mechanism running through the thing, right? So those exact same symbols in that context could have referred to the state of something being powered on, uh, as opposed to like, noun verb it's like the state of being and that was my first instinct was to be like oh i wonder if this is a this is like a language oriented around things objects being modified by the state that they they are currently in the door is becoming in the state of open uh, or the power is becoming in the state of on and that's not what it is and that's fine um but i cannot help but in the first few hours of the game feel like all of the language puzzles have had very obvious solutions uh, in terms of like guessing what the, trying to uh, suss out the system that the language operates on. And I think that, you know, I've only been able to play through the first two floors so far, but as I get further in the game, there seems to be, I think like four distinct floors. I would re I'm really, really hoping that they end up having like more interesting ways of producing meaning uh, than what they have right now. 
Um, because, you know, the way that all these sequences end is you open up your little journal, uh, and then you have to attach the right symbol to the right, effectively, sketch in your journal. Um, so you have to connect the talking symbol to a sketch of someone talking. Um, and is this meant to be like a culmination of everything you've learned over the the area or is this like you, no. you're, are you doing okay you're doing it consistently so like every couple of rooms okay you fill in the symbols from that particular room mm-hmm. um oh it's like into, hey, the puzzle solution informs these sketches which then is creating yes. a broader understanding of the language as a whole right and like it's a really clever i think it's a really really clever and brilliant mode of design i think it is a really interesting way to like basically have two puzzles running parallel to each other that you use you use the both sides of the puzzle to explain the other and to kind of like work through the other in a way that i think is like really clever i think that's really great puzzle design uh, and like really effective design to you know have an npc do what would normally be a really boring I pull a lever, you pull a lever sequence, but to have that I pull a lever, you pull a lever sequence translated into, like, by having that communication um, obscured, it turns it into a really engaging thing where you're like, oh, is this person saying you go there or you help me? Because both, both potential versions refer to the same command. And then, you know, what if I get this puzzle solution wrong because I'm misunderstanding an element of the language or alternatively, how can I use this puzzle solution to reverse engineer what's happening linguistically? Um, and I think in, in in the moments where it's like working, it's really, really good. The problem is I think that at least on the first floor, the language game elements are just a little bit undertuned, even if I think that the aesthetics and the actual like design itself is really, really elegant. Um elegant but undertuned is kind of how I would describe uh, a lot of things about this game so far. Um, but I think it's well, it sounds, really, it sounds really very unique. interesting. Like yeah. it's certain, like I had, this game was not on my radar at all. I was, I'm not shocked that when I looked this up on Steam, it's published by my good friends at Focus Entertainment, creators of so many wonderful games that I like: A Plague Tale, Aliens: Dark Descent, Atlas Fallen. Uh, like they just publish, they just they have a certain how you know it's not a house style, but like they just. They pick interesting games, and so I, I guess I'm not shocked to then see that Focus Entertainment were, were publishing this one because it seems like whatever they put out seems to fall like within our vibe uh, to mm-hmm. someone on 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 the staff. So, um, well, that's that's really cool. It also like reminds me of when I went to Iceland uh, years and years years ago. Like that's such an interesting language because they broadly don't invent new words; they just use the existing language to describe new concepts. And like mm-hmm. we met. Um, I went out there for the Eve Online Fan Fest. Like they flew me and Drew Scanlon, also known as Blinking White Guy, which I, at this point, like people like he's been he's been out of the public eye long enough that you might know him more as Blinking White Guy yeah. than as Drew Scanlon, former video editor for Giant Bomb, but also was worked on video for uh uh what was the the game we ta- Jordan Mechner's game we talked about it uh, last week Karatika right that's um, yeah. Um, he he worked on on that project. Uh, uh, anyway, we were out there and met some Giant Bomb fans. Like a surprise, <laughs> we did a meetup, and it's like, how many people from Iceland could show up? <laughs> a surprising amount um, uh, to to fill a space and explaining how 
out there, um, basically like nothing's translated into Icelandic. And so everyone pretty much learns English because that's the media that's imported. Um, and that you have to wear a special necklace if you want people to speak to you in Icelandic. Cause just the broad assumption is you're not going to like, you're not going to speak this language. <laughs> like, like, and nobody, nobody's doing it. Um, wow. and then I forget how it was explained to me, but like someone walked me through the steps to say email and it was just like, Good God. Like I look, I understand. <laughs> Respect your history. Don't invent new words. That's that's very charming. But also like describing email is that's a whole sentence, uh, just to just to get to that. Right. And that's the kind of stuff that I was really hoping for with um right. with this game. And I'm hope, I'm, I guess I'm so hoping far. you'll Yeah, I'm hoping you'll get that later in the game because it sounds like uh it makes sense to me why early on it would be pretty binary and literal just to get you into the rhythms of of the game and what they're going for. But my hopes would be by by the end they kinda get a little uh, wilder. Yeah. I mean, like one thing I will say is that one of the things I really enjoyed about that first little section, and and this is kind of a, a, a slight spoil. I think it's pretty easy to, to figure this out, but like a quick, very small puzzle spoiler, the way to, to express that there are multiple of something in the specific language, the, the first language that the game introduces you to is to write that character two times. Uh, that is how you expla- express that something is plural, uh, is basically if you put two subjects directly next to each other, that expresses that there is like a multiple of that subject. So uh, if you say, you know, you, you, that is like y'all. Uh, you, you <laughs> is, is, is y'all. That's very um, good. You, me is us. Mm. Um, which is specifically like us referring to like, a group of people that is made up of disparate groups as opposed to me, me, which is like referring to a, a different kind of us and a, a, a us that is like a internally consistent group of people uh, or, or organization. Uh, we as remap radio versus <laughs> we as human beings. Uh, one of them is me, me. The other one is you, me. Uh, is like a really cool, like a very early distinction. And then on the next floor, plurals work completely differently. There is a character that indicates that something is plural as opposed to like a combination of characters all having their meaning altered, um, which I think is really clever. I think it's, I think it's a really cool, like w- what I'm seeing so far when it's working is like really impressing me and making me be like, oh, that's, that's really fun. You, you, me, me, and me, you is just like <laughs> such a sick way of thinking about how to refer to a group of people and also like the kinds of identity that come out of it. Because that's the other thing is that, you know, this game understands that language and culture are like deeply intertwined with one another. And so each floor has a pretty distinct, even if the people interact with one another, which they do, they do have a distinct language and culture from one another that you can like start to recognize in elements of their language. Uh, the devotees, uh, the first group of people you interact with, like depersonalize themselves a lot or refer to people as groups. And so you get things like me, me, you, you, me, you as like a way of expressing identity uh, in, in, in like a, allegiance-oriented thinking, which I think is, like, really sick. Um, I think it's really cool. We're also... Uh, yeah, uh, I, oh, go ahead. 
I was going to say, we're also a hair's breadth from a Wii U joke that it's never being <laughs> said by the game or us, and it's killing me. <laughs> I wonder, um, Ren, did you, ahead, ever, did you ever play uh, Return of the Obra Dinn? Uh, I, I haven't, and okay. I know that's a me problem. I know that me not playing Obra Dinn and, uh, what was it, the... Um, Inkle game made or the ink game made but made after 80 days the one that is also about language mm. um oh god what's heaven's the name vault. of that game heaven's vault thank you heaven's vault is another game that i've looked at and been like yeah that's a ren game but overdin <laughs> and heaven's vault are very like uh, huge gaps in my personal uh canon yeah there was there was just something about the way that you're say the talking about the like complexity of the 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 puzzles that and the way that you're sort of deducing things because nothing is can be explained outright right like like the mm-hmm. way that you're kind of deducing like putting together using deductive reasoning to get to the answers for the sketchbook part of the thing reminded mm-hmm. me of because it's almost exactly this a similar thing where you have like images of people and you have to put names and like what happened to them to the in in return of the Oberden. um and that game uh really ramps up in a way that I've heard like some people I've talked to that have played it like never end up finishing it because it just gets like too wild for them or whatever. And it's an interesting it's always the thing with puzzle games, right? Like there's there's <laughs> these uh there's 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 a the group of a group of people that will always want a puzzle to be harder. Like I'm, I kind of find myself in that group very often, and I wonder whether and, I, or not, and I'm not. Right, I'm, I'm constantly is, shouting at you, assholes. Like no, <laughs> no, the puzzle should be more complex. Well, it's, it's why it's why it was it uh, a viewfinder from uh, right. like you know a month or, or, or uh, back in June or July, like not that long ago. Like that game, I, I remember in explaining, I was like, hey. I like puzzle games until I don't like puzzle games. And there's like a very fine line between those two things right. before I feel bad about myself. And I tried to be very explicit where I was like, if I'm having a fantastic time with this game, that should communicate to you something about the puzzle design. Not that it lacks complexity or nuance or right, thoughtfulness, right. but like in terms of what it's scaling to, like the complexity, like it's not, you know, if like the witness is on one side, like, like viewfinders on the other and like it's why the witness was too much for me and viewfinder like it was like it was a home run for for me and how my my brain works yeah i'm I'm right with you in being like i love vibes based puzzlers yeah (laughs) i love drawing lines and then uh jonathan blow says I'll teach you to draw lines. And at a certain point, I'm like, no, no. Please, no more lines. Yeah, 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 I'm with you. I think it's also like, you know, difficulty can lead to engagement, Mm. right? Uh, The higher a game's difficulty, the more likely you are to engage with different parts of it, with its systems, with, you know, the more time you spend with the game, the more you're likely to engage with different parts of it. Um, And so, like, I think that often puzzle difficulty uh, is used as a shortcut for acquiring like player engagement with the puzzle system as opposed to like treating those as separate but related things yeah um and one thing i will say about chance of sonar is that like even when the puzzles have not been particularly difficult they have always at the very least been engaging uh the only one i've really felt like kind of fell flat for me was um a uh a puzzle that like 
I thought there was something more interesting and turns out it was just uh, matching a bunch of shapes and I hadn't gotten the item that I needed uh, for the puzzle uh, beforehand. <laughs> and so once I'd figured out all of the bits of the language, uh, actually completing the area was just a matter of reading off a couple of things uh, that a special item let me read off as opposed to like pushing me to like think about a situation in novel ways. Um, and that is my worry is that the other puzzle elements are will will begin to feel like means to an end for teaching or learning language. And like, it's fine if that's the case, but I, I think that, you know, I would, I would love to see those systems push on each other a little bit more actively because if they don't, then, you know, I think that the, the, the thing that the game is trying to do by having these two parallel tracks of puzzles is going to fall apart uh, if they are not like, equally engaging on both sides and so far they have not been uh so i want to lay in this plane so we don't keep we've already had Xavier a long time very very thoughtful and gracious with their time <laughs> but i would be a horrible host if i did not tell you that i would allow you to explain to me what beat down fists of vengeance is without at least giving you a minute or two to explain what beat down fists of vengeance is I need everyone to play Beat Down Fists of Vengeance. It's okay. not something you can buy on a modern console. Uh, it, it is. You just like get one of those hacked PlayStation Fists 2s, you know, like vengeance. down the street and just, uh, you know. I, I'm not going to say what I did, but I think that players. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think that players should consider life an immersive sim uh, with a variety of solutions to <laughs> the problem of how do you play Beat Down Fists of Vengeance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking briefly, because uh, as I, I mean, I'm so glad to see the love for a chance of Sonar and uh, Cantata. This is not <laughs> you playing Beat Down Fist of Vengeance supports no developers currently today. But what it will do is <laughs> whoa, uh, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> this screenshot. What? Have, okay. <laughs> All right. Keep going. No, keep going. I don't mean to interrupt. I didn't mean to get derailed by this screenshot. This this screenshot. There's so this was an early proponent of uh allowing any clothing to be worn by any gender slash character there's like five selectable characters okay. and those goofy ass matrix matrix glasses can be worn by any of them no matter how ridiculous it looks anyone can yeah. wear a skirt different colors of skirt it's great and the overall setup for feet beat down fist of vengeance is basically the street fighter 6 world tour mode which I was very excited about when I saw it coming around. It's such a genius structural thing to say, okay, what you do in Street Fighter is you fight people. How do we make that a more expansive single-player experience without arbitrarily loading people with more fights or just weird, difficult fights? And the answer was, put it in a city. Make combat into movement options. Let your character be upgraded over time. I was fascinated by that. I haven't played it yet, but I was so excited. And then a friend whispered in my ear, he said, you might want to play a little thing called Beat Down Fist of Vengeance. <laughs> and it turns out, what if Street Fighter VI World Tour mode, mode that's all well and good. Uh, but what if it was about fucking criminals? What if it was about big old pieces of shit that uh, are have been... <laughs> have been had their have had mission impossible style their structure turned against them and now they have mm -hmm. to figure out what to do you can just go up to anyone and be like hey tell tell me give me your money 
And if, <laughs> and if they don't give their money to you, you beat them down. Or you ah. there's all these different, there's like a list oh. of over 50 characters that you can. So the interesting, mm, there's so much that's juicy and interesting and systemic here. They made a systemic fighting game that plays on elements of RPGs and party-based combat. Your over 50 list of characters. Uh, uh, a list of characters over 50 names long. Each one of those characters is an actual character that exists somewhere in the world. You can rob them. You can interrogate them. You can beat them down, which permanently re uh, removes them from the game and kills them. Anything that's attached to their stories or ways that they, they, you could have worked together is gone. You call up a person who you or you can also recruit them. And then if you recruit them, they then join your party. And whenever you join, get into a fight, say you get knocked out. The next person in your party, it basically means you have three health bars. Your health bar, and then, then your next person comes in, whatever their move list is, and you can use them to try to finish out the fight and pull victory from the jaws of defeat. And when you call up someone you've recruited before, and he's like, I'll only come if Tony comes along. It's like, wait, what do you, what do you mean? And Tony's like, yeah, you're going to pay me 300 bucks. And it's like, I recruited you. <laughs> I made you who you are. And... I would, I, I just to test it, I backed out of the game, reloaded a save, and he was like, yeah, sure, I'll just be at the park. They take all of these modular responses and relationships to, to characters in the world with some additional waiting to make it make sense, and they just drop you into that landscape and then force you to continually use that strategic landscape in a different way with a really satisfying combat system and a aesthetic that is grimy but not edgy it's kind of over the top and absurd it's a direct precursor of now one of the best single player modes we've seen in a fighting game uh it's really good and i encourage you to uh go to the shady dude uh on your <laughs> local corner with that box of ps2s slip him a 20 support local businesses <laughs> <laughs> i have to so I was, uh, I was looking up this game a little bit yeah I, I have to read a couple of quotes from uh, Tetsuya Minami, uh, the, uh, I believe, in a producer on, on the game. It's from a, a Game Spy, that's taking me back, interview from 2005. I'm not going to read this whole quote, but Game Spy asked, what sorts of gameplay mechanics can we expect? Which is a, that is a 2005, you've been given an interview with a game designer question, if I have <laughs> ever, ever heard one. Um, I was, I've been there. I, I, I asked those questions too, man. This is not. <laughs> this is not Duncan on Charles Onyet, uh, who who did this interview. Um, and uh, Manami says, uh, da -da. "Oh, and finally, the third feature that I feel is a uh, I feel very is a I feel very strongly is a great strength in beatdown is the costume change feature. When I say costume change, please don't confuse it with many other games. When the change is <laughs> simply cosmetic or just meant to give you customization for the sake of customization." In beatdown, this actually has a very strong effect on the gameplay. It prevents you from being caught by the police or the mob. It helps you fulfill certain ob obligations nice. and certain Hell missions. Yeah. <laughs> and this what this sense is going to be a little dicey ride with me. Keeping with the urban theme of the game, we prepared many urban type costumes for you to use. Everything from shirts, pants, shoes, accessories, all sorts of things that should make it really fun to customize your character. Now, 2005 <laughs> Japanese team making a game Jesus. like you know. Let me say yeah. this. Yeah, having played it, I know exactly what he's talking about. These <laughs> options are urban as fuck. You can get parachute okay, right, validated. That, I'm just saying that sentence started to make me sweat. Uh, I'm starting to sweat reading that sentence, and so at least you can you can come in here and you can 
from the top rope. Manami, you nailed it. High five. He, he nailed exactly what he was at least saying that he was going for, right? Okay. And the idea that I walk into a shop and a guy's like, I'm going to kick your fucking ass. And you walk into a shop and you say, hey, I need like a pink mini skirt. And you walk back out and that guy says, yo, dude, what's up? And you're like, cool. I'm, I'm flying I'm, under the radar. I'm, I'm out. <laughs> that is amazing. And I have this, this second quote I have to read. Um, uh, game Spy, you just mentioned taking risks. It sure is a risk to develop a game for U.S. audiences using an entirely Japanese staff. Again, 2005, that is a, that is a very... Anyway, Minami says, you might say, I was nervous at first, but now I'm pretty confident that people will like it. And at any rate, I did the best I could. Just oh. tears down my eyes. <laughs> I, I, GameSpy follows it up. There's Why the United States? Manami, <laughs> it's the biggest market. <laughs> Just like, I love Pitch this dude. It's the biggest That is a craftsman. I love this look, dude. Look, I mean. I, this, is the, uh, this, is the, this is the fucking Dragon Guard people. Uh, Apparently. What, really? Yeah. Wow. Kavya. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> wow. Wild. I don't think. I don't yeah, know that I, makes. Yeah. This is after no, Dragon Guard that. two, uh, according to the their list. Oh, of games. it's from. Oh, from. Uh, yes, that's that studio that was that did a lot of stuff with Capcom. Yeah. Uh, yeah. At the time. Um. Interesting. Yeah. No, you are. You are right. That's delightful. Um. <laughs> and what's been delightful has been the last two hours with Xavier Nelson Jr. coming in to hang out here on Remap Radio. Xavier, what? What do you want to tell the people? What's I know you got uh, your game coming up. What else do you want to promote? Tell people about um, as we near the end of this podcast. Uh, if if you like strange scaffolds and what we're doing and how we do it, uh, tell your friends. This is the time to to say it and to, to show up. As I said, El Paso Elsewhere comes out September twenty sixth. We have one of the things that has uh, pulled us out of the place we were in is that uh, a fellow game dev studio named Frosty Pop. Uh, I told them the game I most wanted to make next was an urban fantasy kidnapping sim about a druid that lived in suburbia who sacrificed multiple people a year uh, to delay the end of the world on behalf of a god he didn't know existed. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, you know, standard shit you you see in a video game. It's a crowded genre and market, but I think we can make a difference there. What's the Steam tag for that one? <laughs> it's not on Steam yet. Uh, this is a Remap Radio exclusive. Uh, that's that's called Life Eater, and that's a thing that's on the way. Uh, Sunshine Shuffle, which was temporarily banned from the Nintendo eShop for uh, allegedly uh, promoting child gambling, is a game we released earlier this year and is very good. <laughs> and another Remap Radio exclusive is that I did just make a deal to put it in a school. So uh, we That's don't need children to gamble, <laughs> but uh, it's now in a school. <laughs> well, look, Zavler, you, your game might not teach kids to gamble, but the app stores do. So um, uh, it's yeah. happening. I have I have these children. They're being mm. taught it. We're, like the gambling mechanics are come to them. Like this is <laughs> that is part of that is part of it. So I think you're in a healthier place. But um, I know you did mention um, you know the the best way that people can support folks is to like do it directly what is like the most direct way they come out of this podcast that game doesn't come out to the end of next month right like what would you point people towards as like an action point to support the work you're doing right after this podcast like ah 
<laughs> I want to go give him money. I want to go play one of his games. What's the thing you'd, you'd point people towards? That they could just- I, I appreciate the refocusing. I want to talk about some of the absurd, uh, subversive things I was doing uh, to continue to be a, a, a wild, wild man. The <laughs> most direct way you can support Strange Scaffold right now is you can follow uh, Strange Scaffold, uh, at Strange Scaffold, on X and Instagram and uh, YouTube and X. so on, following <laughs> our social media channels and post it in... Yeah, fucking X. Uh... <laughs> It's uh, all right. We get it. <laughs> heading over to our social media channels, talking about our games, especially very actively. Uh, El Paso Elsewhere, wishlisting that today and picking up that game when it comes out. It is a full on Max Payne alike where a vampire hunter goes into a haunted motel to kill the monster he loved before she ends the world. And there will be sphincters in there. So, you know, it gets wild. <laughs> uh, the wishlisting that game. Playing our other games, we have games available on Nintendo Switch, Xbox, and Steam. Uh, those uh, and talking about our stuff and following our social media channels, those are all direct ways that you can share uh, the work we're doing and uh, the way in which we do it, because I think that those things are one and the same. Thank you so much for having me. It has been an honor and a pleasure and a joy, and I need to play uh, Chance of Sonar now. <laughs> it's really there good. we go that's all that's all we can ask for and we'll we'll have to have you back on i i know that um we had you on because rob was gone but i would love to have you on sometime with rob because i think the two of you would would get along uh splendidly so we'll we'll have yeah, you back I, on uh rob's sometime. one of my favorite people i haven't talked to him in years okay well we're gonna fix that it, like the, we will we will bring you back on uh sometime down the road we appreciate the time today um thanks to everyone for listening you can listen to uh and thanks to two mellow for the track uh, Moments Pause. Uh, you can follow more of Tumelo's work at tumelomakes.bandcamp.com. You can support everything that we do at Remap by going to remapradio.com. This week, next week are a little bit lighter because we've got Rob out. Um, but uh, we, uh, Rob, uh, Kato and I continued our adventures of Dolores and uh, an elderly woman in Starfield who only communicates with her goddamn fists. Um, she just punches people. It's a left, a right, and it's an undercut. Um, and we're, we're working to perk her up towards right in the gut, just right in the gut. Um, every time we land one of those crits, it is, it is a delight. You can, you can see us. Uh, we started that last, uh, last week. We're continuing, uh, that this week. And I, my guess is we're going to continue to follow the adventures of Dolores, uh, for a little while longer. Um, fingers crossed. We'll be able to reschedule Ren and Kato diving back into armored core six. And then on Friday, Kato, I got a DM from our uh, friendly neighborhood Kingsfield expert who gave us some real tips last time. Yeah. They gave us a couple more tips. One, I feel bad because our stream is going to overlap with them not being able to attend. But they gave us some additional tips, some strategies on where we could put some of our warp stones. Huh. And warned, if you don't finish it today... You're gonna finish it the next time. Oh, so we are we are on close, the path. Huh? Shit! At, at oh our current pace, uh, Kingsfield for the ancient game? city. <laughs> I just, and Kingsfield for the ancient city. I didn't know that game had a credit section. Um, uh, but apparently, we're near the end on that. It's been a lot of fun. A really interesting game. Um, so tune into that on, on around the time that you're listening to this. Uh, you might be able to catch the end of that stream and we'll have a a full week next week uh full of, full of stuff uh until then thanks everyone for listening fuck capitalism go home